Welcome to episode 12 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host for the show, Jason Dubray. This is going to be an unusual episode because I'm going live with this, and uh, I'm going live on my Facebook stream as well as on the stream for the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, what happened was uh, last week, exactly a week ago, I recorded episode 12 with regular guest Dan Boudet. Dan's been great about being on the show. This would have been his third appearance. Uh, after we spent two and a half hours recording the show, which is the usual length that it takes to record them, uh, discovered that it didn't actually record, which was a, a terrible, terrible feeling to have. Um, since then, I, I kind of tried to figure out a, a way to do this, uh, recap the show and include it in the list um, without having to ask Dan to have to uh, re-record it with me. So what I'm going to be doing with this live show is a couple things. First, I'm going to recap all of the reviews of the six vampire movies that we looked at. Um, I will then at the end uh, give Dan's points, give the points that I gave, and mention which of these movies is going to be leaving my movie collection uh, right away here. And then uh, my other reason for doing this was to test out this live format and the StreamYard service that um, previous guest Tim Hildebrandt told me about. Uh, it worked really well, uh, in my opinion, for uh, Tim's show. And I've decided that I'm going to commit, as long as we're doing um, these distance episodes uh, and recordings of the podcast, to use StreamYard in the future. So we're looking at vampires this week, and with the vampire genre, I kind of feel like my, my teenage years were spent with the vampire movies coming out. It became very big for a couple of decades, kind of like uh, these trends and subgenres of horror movies uh, come to be. Uh, shortly after the vampire um, genre started to become a little bit tired is when we saw the resurgence of... Um, things like the zombie movies and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm really excited to uh, try this out. Uh, there is a, uh, a way that you can uh, submit some comments to me as we uh, do the show. So um, because I'm recapping what Dan said, you would have the opportunity to send in some comments and be an extra guest as I talk about the movies that we're gonna talk about. Um, and also, uh, I just want to give you a warning that there are spoilers for the six movies that we are going to be uh, reviewing, the collective we that Dan and I talked about. A lot of what Dan uh, referred to, which was awesome, was uh, his, his background um, was falling uh, in love with vampire movies because of the universal monster movies, which I'm becoming a fan of as well. And then he later in university took uh, a gothic literature class, which had a huge impact on him. And unfortunately, I won't be able to do justice to what he contributed to the episode. But as I recall things that he talked about, I will uh, include them because they did impact uh, his his feeling about some of the uh, the six movies that we're, we're taking a look at. Um I also want you to just be aware of the show in general. It is now on Spotify. It is now on Stitcher. Uh, we're still working towards getting it on iTunes. 
Uh, I have a website, theshelfsheddingmovieshow.ca. It's important that it's the .ca, um, as in uh, because this is recorded in Canada. Please check out that website. Check out my Facebook group of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show as well. I'm happy to get feedback and comments. You can email me at shelfsheddingmovieshow at gmail.ca as well. Perfect. All right, so the six movies that we are looking at uh, are going to be Blade 2, Shadow of the Vampire, Bram Stoker's Dracula, From Dusk Till Dawn, Interview with the Vampire, and finally, um, last, I don't know if it's least or not, we'll find out, but from the Twilight Saga, we're going to look at Breaking Dawn Part 1. So those are the six movies that we are going to take a look at. So starting off with Blade 2, um, Dan and I talked uh, quite a bit about this. Dan immediately after the last episode we recorded grabbed uh, the six vampire movies and he was really interested in this this episode and blade 2 was in particular is one he wanted to talk about uh dan is a fan of blade 2 and is a fan quite rightly so of its director guimero del toro um the oscar winner for the shape of water many of you may have seen pan's labyrinth as well this particular stage of uh guimero del toro's career. Um, he had made a prominent uh, independent film um, in the Spanish language, and he was getting some for higher gigs in Hollywood, uh, Mimic being uh, one of the more prominent ones. And with Blade II, uh, there's a couple things that he did with this. Um, one thing that Dan really wanted me to talk about was the fact that uh, there's a TV show called The Strain um, that Guimero del Toro was a producer and creator of. And what he did with the creatures, these kind of uh, super vampire creatures in Blade II, was a little bit of, of the, um, the start of the creatures in the strain, where their mouths would open and they kind of jut out in a really kind of cool effect. And so he appreciated that. Uh, some of the other things, you know, to, uh, to, to be aware of with Blade II is it does have a quite a good cast, and this was the start of a collaboration that Guillermo del Toro had with Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman, uh, after this, became Hellboy for two the two Hellboy movies that uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, directed. So um, there, there's some interesting stuff there for sure. Going back to some of my my notes, um, I think we agreed and disagreed in some areas. The biggest area where we um, agreed, I think, is that if you are looking for an action vampire movie as an entertainment, you know, don't think about too much, put your brain on hold, Blade Two will do the trick, all right? Um, it does have some, some quite interesting special effects. Um, for the most part, I'm not 100% on the makeup design, but the makeup for the most part is is quite good in there. So it's a movie that that looks quite good, 
and it does have a better than average cast. Um, the the lead is uh, Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes is an interesting uh, guy. I think he's trying to have a little bit of a resurgence at the moment. Uh, with Wesley Snipes, he was really big in the late 80s, early 90s, doing serious films. He worked quite a bit with Spike Lee and, uh, and, and some filmmakers like that. And then he kind of moved into being more of an action star through the rest of the 90s and into the early part of the century. Uh, as I understand it, neither Dan or I have seen the third Blade movie. Uh, it is, in fact, a trilogy. And the third Blade movie, I don't think Wesley Snipes was as invested in. It was probably a paycheck performance, and he was apparently very, very difficult on the set. And uh, other actors, other people had to sort of make up and pull the slap or pull the weight for, for him in that case. In this one, it still seems like Wesley Snipes is invested in Blade 2. He does a serviceable job of playing uh, the central character, Blade. So it, it is a worthwhile performance. Ron Perlman is terrific. Uh, not a big surprise. He plays a villain in this. Um, but he's a terrific genre actor. And uh, definitely he is one of the highlights of this movie. People who are fans of The Walking Dead will recognize Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus is, uh, is, has become quite a good character actor, and he does appear in, in Blade in quite a different role than the one he plays uh, in The Walking Dead. He kind of has become a little bit of uh, the cantankerous, wise old man on that show. Uh, in this case, he's kind of the, this hotshot techie, um, and he's in a little bit of conflict with Chris Christopherson, who I'll get to in a minute. Uh, and um, But they, they seem like they're working together. It's actually quite a good uh, performance, and it was nice to see him in the movie as well. One of the problems, though, is Chris Christopherson, and it's not with Chris Christopherson's acting. I'm a fan of his, a terrific musician, and when he shows up in movies, it's usually an exciting thing. He was a big part of the first movie, Blade. Maybe unfairly, one of my issues is I like Blade a lot more than I like Blade 2. And the very beginning of Blade 2 uh, is kind of this convoluted way of keeping Chris Christopherson in these movies. Uh, spoilers right now for Blade, uh, for the first movie, but Chris Christopherson gets killed in Blade. Then what happens is in the very beginning of Blade 2, there's this great mission where they've discovered that he is alive and he's been kidnapped by these uh, vampires and Blade goes through this whole thing to try to rescue him and bring him back into the movie. And sure, okay, it's, it is what it is there, but then when they get Chris Christopherson back and in the movie, they don't do anything interesting with him. He stays very much in the background he shows up for a couple of convenient moments, but um, one of the biggest problems is he completely disappears during the climax of the movie and kind of stumbles out uh, and just appears for a moment in, during the resolution. So I'm being, I think I was, I'm, I'm quite hard on Blade 2, um, but I certainly recognize it as kind of a passable three-star action vampire movie that I think enough people uh, will enjoy. Um, 
there is a female lead in here as well. And uh, again, I, you know, I don't want to be too hard on her. Um, they don't give her very much to do in the movie. And, and when she shows up, just, um, she looks right for the role, but she's not a terrific actor necessarily. Some pretty flat line delivery and that kind of thing. Um, but I don't think it will completely spoil the meal of this film. If you're looking for uh, a vampire action movie, uh, then this is a good one. Uh, just one more thing I want to say about it before we move on to the next review is that a, a lot of people um, a couple of years ago made, made a big deal of, of Black Panther. And in the Marvel Universe, Black Panther being the first African-American uh, comic book hero, which is not actually true. Uh, just before the whole Marvel universe started, Blade and the Blade movies happened, which are based on um, some of the, uh, what were considered some of the, the darker comics at the time. This one's a little bit different. Stan Lee doesn't make a, a cameo appearance like he, he did uh, when he was still living in a lot of the Marvel movies. And it is uh, very much a hard R in this series. So, uh, I, again, I wouldn't recommend it for those who are fans of say Iron Man or that kind of thing, or even fans of black Panther. It is, um, a less family friendly, um, comic book action, uh, hero. So blade two, again, giving it a pass here. Uh, but I would recommend blade over blade two any day. And, Again, looking at uh, this list of movies, it's not, you know, there, there are some problems with some of these. So uh, I think for me, it, it falls a little bit to the lower end or maybe a, a touch in the middle. Okay, next film I want to talk about is quite an interesting one, Shadow of the Vampire. And there's probably the most famous vampire movie is called Nosferatu. And Nosferatu is one that scared a lot of people because it seemed a little bit too real. And uh, there's all kinds of um, myths about that production that F.R. Murnau, uh, who is kind of an eccentric uh, German filmmaker, he actually came across a real vampire and cast that vampire in Nosferatu. Um, the actor's name is Max Schreck. Shadow of the Vampire is a 2000 uh, a movie from 2000. It was released very late in 2000, starring uh, John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. And it's about the filming and the making of that movie. Malkovich plays uh, Murnau, and Max Schreck is played by Willem Dafoe. And uh, the movie is very interesting because... It, it does go along with the mythology that, in fact, there was a vampire who played this role. And a little bit of a dynamic in there about uh, between Marneau and the vampire, which of these two characters is the more evil character. Marneau is, is hell-bent on creating this realistic vampire movie, the fact that he's come across this monster and he feels, he sees himself as a scientist who needs to document this moment in time. 
to be able to convince this vampire to be in his movie, he has said that at the end of filming that the vampire can have the leading lady played by uh, Catherine McCormick in a serviceable performance. She does, you know, she does quite a good job. Um, but her, her entire purpose is to be a bit of a diva on set and at the end to very much be the un, um, unaware victim of this plot. But we start to see how the levels of Murnau will go, particularly in the climax of this film where um, people are dying left, right, and center, and he continues filming and he keeps almost pretending like they have uh, like his crew and everybody there is still alive as he's totally taken over uh, the, the filming of this, this last scene. Um, and uh, it, it just shows like this break, almost like this, um, I hate to say it, psychosis in the John Malkovich character. Um, Willem Dafoe though, in, and the makeup design and very much the, uh, the cinematography are the stars of the film, but Willem Dafoe, most of all, Willem Dafoe is an interesting actor. He, he does get attention. He's been up for, uh, I think about four Academy Award, uh, nominations over the years. To me, this is the performance where he completely disappeared. This is such, uh, a unique take on a vampire. He's a very old vampire. Um, a lot of the stuff that Defoe does with his face uh, and with his physicality, and he has these really long, gross nails that he taps, taps, taps. And he approaches it very much like, uh, like a rat with his face, and he's kind of sniffing things out and looking for ways that he can uh, get some blood and look at some victims. And and there are some victims along the way. They have to replace the, uh, the the main cinematographer partway through the shoot because of what Defoe's character has done. It's a remarkable performance. Uh, both uh, Dan and I really liked it. Uh, Dan went to the, the level of saying that it was uh, hands down the best movie of this list. Um, for me, I, I, it's in the top part of the list for sure. Uh, we did, however, disagree slightly on the John Melkovich character. Dan would have liked to see a little bit more of a backstory uh, for F.W. Murnau um, in many ways. And uh, I, I was satisfied with him being somewhat mysterious. Uh, the fact that he's, he has some, some drug addiction problems and he has this old life outside of uh, when he's filming where he kind of disappears for a while, which is likely where he encountered this vampire. To me, that part's very interesting. I didn't need a ton of back uh, story. This is quite a tight film as well. It's uh, likely the shortest of, of the movies that we're looking at here. Um, and it's, it's very well put together. Uh, fun fact, Nicolas Cage is a producer of Shadow of the Vampire. As I understand it, Cage originally... Uh, bought it up or the rights to it so that he could play the vampire. But then when he saw what Willem Dafoe could do, he, 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 he backed away from the role and served strictly as a producer because he could see that nobody else could do this as well as Willem Dafoe. It's an exceptional movie. I think of the list, it's probably the least watched and the least known. It is a quite a tough movie to get a hold of, and I I, I have had some trouble getting a hold of it. I, I originally uh, bought it um, because 
on um, my my friend uh, Larry Parsons show Rank and Review. I was looking at it and I included it in a list of the best horror movies of the first decade of the 21st century. Um, so I'll show you the, the DVD one more time for Shadow of the Vampire. If you get a chance to watch Shadow of the Vampire and you are a fan of vampires, it is very much worth it. Uh, one other thing I just wanted to mention, just as a side note, a, another kind of unrecognized performance that's really good in here is a gentleman named Eddie Izzard, who is a, uh, uh, who is a comedian, and he he plays the role quite serious, and he's very much the leading man in the movie that they're making, and he's asked to do some pretty tricky things in here, and one is they have shots of him filming Nosferatu, and he is discovering the vampire at the same time as um, as as we are. And so he is playing a character who has to look scared, but he himself playing the actor is also scared. And he's able to show that just through his face. Izzard is also very good. Uh, he's a he's an actor who is quite comfortable being in drag and he does that for a, for a lot of his own shows. And so the, like the over makeup of the black and white silent films works really well and his kind of he was able to adapt to being believable as a silent movie star so just another shout out to eddie izzard uh shadow of the vampire is a terrific uh vampire film and definitely worth checking out okay we're moving uh, forward now into 1992 actually backwards to 1992 the last movie was in 2000, but 1992 uh, was Bram Stoker's Dracula. And Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, was a major release in 1992. Um, I, I was in the first few years of fully becoming a movie geek when this came out. And it was the summer before there would be all kinds of teasers and trailers. And for months on end, there was promotion for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it was a big, sweeping epic by Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola, um, again, had most of his success with the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now in the 1970s. Uh, I feel that other than Apocalypse Now, Bram Stoker's Dracula is very much his biggest film visually. Uh, it's quite ambitious. It looks great in every single aspect. And it is very faithful to um, the novel, Dracula, the classic no novel. Um, one of the things that Dan and I talked about was with the Universal Monsters Dracula that uh, starred Bela Lugosi, the original one. Because of the time it was made and the limitations um, to things, they really had to sort of uh, water it down. And there is definitely like a very violent, very bloody aspect to the story. Plus there's quite a, a sexual aspect to Dracula where he is, he is really old, but he can also find ways to appear young and be very attractive to the Mina character. And that's explored quite a bit better in this version of, of Dracula. The cast is interesting uh, and, and quite varied in, in nature. Um, we first talked about Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman plays Dracula beautifully. 
And he, the challenge that he has is he has to play Dracula when he is quite old and eccentric, when he's young and handsome, when he is uh, a full-out demon-like monster, and in several different um, uh, visualizations throughout the film. No matter what it is, Oldman is totally believable. He is uh, a chameleon. We both had that down as our notes. Um, this was still at the stage where uh, watching movies for about five years, I watched Gary Oldman in movies, and it was really towards the late 90s before I realized that Gary Oldman was actually British. He is so good in this movie. Uh, uh, other people are noteworthy. The great Anthony Hopkins, um, basically the year after The Silence of the Lambs, appears here as, as Van Helsing. He plays it big, but I feel that it's appropriate because Coppola plays this big. It is an operatic version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So all the stuff that Hopkins does uh, works quite well. We were uh, both quite taken with the performance um, enough. I mean, it wasn't my favorite in the movie, um, but it was it was quite quite good. Renfield is played by the great Tom Waits, another wonderful, wonderful musician and singer who appears in movies. And to me, it's always a treat when Tom Waits shows up in the movie. And he plays Renfield beautifully and has some really wonderful scenes throughout. We have some other appearances by actors like Carrie Elways. Carrie Elways uh, was also appeared in Shadow of the Vampire as the second cinematographer. And, um, and, and, and what we have here is uh, just a, um, a serviceable, serviceable performance from him in both cases. He's, he's, a, he's a good presence to have uh, in the movie for sure. Uh, a few other folks I wanted to want. Probably the biggest problem I had it down as the biggest weakness for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dan had a few others. Um, is a uh, really nice man, I understand, but uh, Canadian actor Keanu Reeves. And he is supposed to be the guy who is going to get married to Winona Ryder's character, Mina. And every scene that Keanu Reeves is in, he is very distracting because it's just, you could see he's trying really hard. He's just, everything he is doing, he is trying hard, but it is not a great performance. He's monotone, he's flat in nature. And to me, one of the great miracles of Gary Oldman's wonderful performance in this movie is how he's able to maintain that energy when he is working off of Keanu Reeves, particularly in the early scenes. Okay, now I'm going to start off with Dan's perspective on this, which is it's important that I balance this out so that it's not sounding too much like only my reviews. He said, um, Keanu Reeves did a favor in how bad he was in this movie so that we would be distracted by how bad Winona Ryder is playing Mina. And that was the moment where probably the, of the three episodes that we have worked on together, that was the biggest uh, gap that we had because I love Winona Ryder as Mina in this movie, and he did not. He thought everything was very hammy and very fake and uh, quite melodramatic. Whereas I think her her work real her 
her performance worked really well, that she was able to transition from um, being a fairly naive uh, woman whose only goal in life, you know, is she's, she's limited to this idea of that she's going to marry this uh, Keanu Reeves, this lawyer. And, um, and even though there's, there's not a lot of excitement in, in, in that relationship, she's happy to have a solid man that she's going to marry, but then he disappears and he gets trapped by Dracula at the same time. Gary Oldman appearing much younger appears. And this is this mysterious foreign man that she has genuine uh, feelings for and sexual feelings towards. And so a lot of the movie is her discovering that. Also part of it is a remarkable opening sequence that Coppola puts together, um, which talks about Vlad the Conqueror, who is the historical real person who's the basis for Dracula. And we see what happens with his fallout with the Catholic Church and how he loses the love of his life to a suicide. And in that opening sequence, we see Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder and also Anthony Hopkins as the priest appear, which then leads to this next era. And it's like that Mina is his partner from a past life and they are meant to, to be together. So it's very strange because it is quite a bloody, quite a graphic uh, version of Dracula, yet it's also quite romantic in nature. Uh, I love how big it is. I don't always love how big certain movies are, but this one works well for me. The other piece is just a sweeping, beautiful movie score uh, in, in Dracula. So uh, I think Dan recommended it, but he had a few reservations. Uh, I recommended it. I recommend Bram Stoker's Dracula wholeheartedly. Uh, it's it's well worth it if you haven't had a chance to see it. I think it's a little bit easier to get a hold of than Shadow of the Vampire. Um, the performances are great. It is, in my opinion, maybe the last truly great Francis Ford Coppola film. Uh, I know some people out there might be fans of a movie he did in the later 90s called uh, the Rainmaker, uh, based on a John Grisham novel. But to me, Bram Stoker's Dracula is is well worth it. And it was one of the movies I was really excited to talk about uh, on this podcast. All right, so what we're getting is, and we've, we, I do feel like we have a nice variation here of, of, of the different types of vampires that we see in movies. Uh, we have the action hero, as as we saw with Blade 2, with Blade. Uh, then we see kind of these, these tortured vampires who live for years and years and uh, are, are just struggling um, in, in the modern world. And we see kind of the romantic vampire as well as the older one. We're going to be taking a look at some pretty brooding vampires later on. And then we're going to be looking at kind of the uh, less harmful vampires that uh, want to date your teenage daughter type of thing. So we have a lot of different vampires in here. But after watching some of the heavier vampire movies, it was almost like a breath of fresh air to take a look at Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, this was a collaboration with Quentin Tarantino, and they have been good friends for a long time. 
And there was a, it felt like a long wait from after Tarantino for Tarantino's follow-up to Pulp Fiction, which was really, really cemented his place in history as one of the great filmmakers of all time. And in between Tarantino was doing a few different things. Uh, he was contributing to some anthology films. There's an anthology movie called uh, Four Rooms where he was four different uh, uh, mini movies and he wrote and directed one of those. And about, about a month after this, From Dusk Till Dawn came out where he wrote the screenplay, didn't direct it, but he acted in it. And Tarantino also made some cameos and some Spike Lee movies and that kind of thing. But Tarantino started to focus on himself as the actor. Um, I've, I've talked to uh, some people about this. I know uh, Larry Parsons of Rankin Review, just to plug his show once again here. Um, Larry very much finds Tarantino distracting when he acts in movies. From Dust Till Dawn actually is his most fleshed out performance, maybe his best performance. And it's kind of an interesting movie because the very first half is absolutely nothing like a vampire movie. So this is a bit of a spoilers territory because the experience for a lot of people, not Dan, because Dan read up on it ahead of time before he saw the movie, but uh, for many people is you're watching a crime movie about these brothers and one of the brothers has broken the other one out of jail and they're going on a kill crazy rampage. The two brothers, the Gecko brothers, are played by George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino. And, and oftentimes we see uh, briefly the world that Tarantino's character sees, which is distorted. He is a sex offender and he is, um, I would argue, mentally ill. And he sometimes thinks that women are saying things to him that they aren't. And so this was kind of the first, I'm not sure disagreement is the right word that uh, Dan and I had. So he felt that what was trying to be set up with these Gecko brothers was this idea that uh, they're kind of like um, Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction, the Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta characters, where there are these fun, this, this fun pair of guys you can joke around with and you really like. My argument is they are not really likable people, that really more of the purpose, particularly with the Tarantino character, is he's kind of like how the Joe Pesci character acts in some of the um, Goodfellas, Casino, Scorsese movies, where he is so dangerous and so violent that we don't know what he's going to do from moment to moment, and he could make things very, very difficult for Clooney. And simply their goal is to get to Mexico and get away from police authorities. And there's quite a, a powerful sequence early on where they've had, they've kidnapped this woman and they're in this hotel. And Clooney went to check on things at the border before they try to, to make the crossing. And he comes back and Tarantino has massacred this woman. And it's, it's shot really well by Rodriguez where we see flashes of this horrible violence, but it flashes back to Clooney's reaction going, oh, he did it again. And it's, it's quite well done. It's quite well done. I'm not sure Tarantino is necessarily the greatest of actors, but he's serviceable in this one. Clooney, I remember at the time, I, I wasn't as 
as on board with Clooney when I first saw this movie, but now I am more so. And I can see that he does a nice job of centering the film. The Gecko brothers then, they've lost their hostage and they kidnap a family. And the family is played by Harvey Keitel, who is a, uh, a preacher who has lost his faith after his wife has died. And it's just a really good performance from Keitel. Not like he's he's been in so many movies, but it's so different from what you would actually see. Very good um, character voice he has. Sounds quite believable as this pastor. And he's traveling with his two children, uh, played by Juliette Lewis. Juliette Lewis is awesome in this role. Uh, she's not playing, she's often like the um, Natural Born Killers, California, plays quite high-strung characters. Here she is very grounded, and she just plays um, kind of a normal teenage girl who's traveling along on this, this adventure with these escaped criminals. Uh, she does quite a good job, uh, and she, much like Clooney, does a nice job of centering the film. Um, and as well, um, Keitel and his wife had adopted a Chinese boy who uh, is, is an early-stage teenager who is traveling along. Spoilers for the rest of the movie. Um, even though there's great suspense and a lot that could go wrong, they do manage to cross into Mexico, and then there's this great release of tension and suspense as they go to meet up with um, the criminal connections at uh, a strip club in Mexico. And this is where the movie changes. Um, Clooney and Tarantino managed to upset a lot of the people who work in this bar. And the bar is made up of uh, truckers and, uh, and, and motorcycle, um, uh, mo motorcycle guys. And they're seen there and out comes Selma Hayek. So we start to move into what I consider the Robert Rodriguez half of the movie, where we see um, Danny Trevo uh, is playing the bartender, and we see Cheech Marin play three characters in here, a border guard. He is kind of this uh, carnival barker outside of the strip club. And then he makes an appearance towards the end and is another character. So these are regular uh, characters who regularly or actors who regularly appear in Robert Rodriguez films. And then after this uh, dance that Selma Hayek does, all of the employees turn into vampires. And then it turns into the most wonderful B vampire movie you can imagine. Uh, with Harvey Keitel kind of regaining his faith and blessing holy water, which they use to combat the vampires. They take a bunch of guns, turn them into crosses, and we see major characters start to die very quickly. And it's like people that we thought were going to last at least maybe not the whole movie, but till late in the movie, start going. Um, we have some terrific cameo performances of, from... People like uh, Fred Williamson, a great black exploitation star, uh, and uh, Tom Savini, who is in charge of the the great makeup effects for some of the most amazing horror movies um, of all time, and certainly in, in in the '80s, he was big, very responsible for the success of, say, Friday the Thirteenth, and he has a nice role in there as well. And uh, it becomes a battle of um, these people against these vampires. And it's just, it was really, this is the most I've enjoyed the movie. This is my third time watching it. And 
maybe it's going to be at like a slightly elevated place because I was just in the right mood at the right time to see this movie. And I, I sort of ignored some of its flaws. Uh, certainly the Tarantino character is not somebody that I think anybody should like. Um, and uh, these guys are not great, but I think there are some characters that you can latch on to and enjoy the movie for what it is. It got massacred by critics. It was a January release. Uh, people are like, why is Tarantino wasting his time with this? He should be making movies, not acting in them. Uh, but I think it's rather unfair criticism. And Dan very much agreed, other than his qualms with uh, the Tarantino character uh, being as, as repulsive as he is. And he is repulsive um, from start to finish. But I, I, I don't think there was an effort in there for him to um, be a character that we're necessarily 100% cheering for uh, in this movie. So again, high recommend for From Dusk Till Dawn. Again, it's kind of in the Blade category. I like it more than Blade as uh, this brainless movie, but it's kind of cool to see the melding of the first half where we see um, some, uh, some interesting cameos. Uh, Kelly Preston uh, appears as a reporter, giving much with a lot of the background of what the Gecko Brothers have been up to. And Kelly Preston is uh, John Travolta's wife. And this was, of course, shortly after John Travolta had been given one of the great roles of his career by Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. Um, and, and so I, I, I think it's worth checking out From Dust Till Dawn. Easily accessible. I believe it is also on Netflix if you want to check it out on Netflix. Next movie we're going to talk about is, I was talking about the brooding, depressed, slogging vampire. And we're, we're looking at a film version of a classic vampire novel by Anne Rice, uh, the, the Vampire Chronicles Interview with the Vampire. Um, and this was an enormous release uh, back in 1994. Again, it was very, it was highly anticipated. Um, I was excited because I really like this uh, Irish director, Neil Jordan. Neil Jordan had just come off of his biggest success, a movie called The Crying Game, which very much changed how movies would be made, particularly uh, the independent spirit of movies. It was very successful in 1992. And after this, he could pretty much write his own ticket for his next project. And he signed on to a very big budget big studio version of Interview with the Vampire. Anne Rice herself wrote the screenplay for it. We had Tom Cruise at the time, um, arguably the biggest movie star in the world. Brad Pitt, who was the upcoming biggest movie star in the world, had signed on to this, as well as several other great actors for this project. The movie seems like it's about Tom Cruise playing Lestat, this famous vampire, and he does get top billing. But uh, Interview the Vampire is mostly about a literal interview with a vampire. Christian Slater is interviewing a vampire named Louis. Side note here, um, the uh, late great River Phoenix uh, died way too young. He was supposed to play this role. 
Uh, he died when it was in production, and they had to scramble, and Christian Slater at the last minute came in, played this role, and he's... I have more positive things. I have a lot of not so positive things to say about Interview with the Vampire, but Christian Slater is is quite good. I mean, I'm not sure he was stretching himself in any way, shape, or form, but he serves the role really well as this this man talking to this rather eccentric vampire played by Brad Pitt, Louis. I've said a lot of nice things about Brad Pitt in the many movies we've reviewed on this podcast. Dan and I are both in the same place on this one. Brad Pitt is so flat in this movie. I think he took the idea that this guy is, is so depressed and he's hated being a vampire for centuries. He still has some humanity left in him, so he's felt bad about having to kill off people and sucking their blood to be able to survive. And there's points where he tries to avoid doing that. And in doing this, then his approach to this melancholy was to be just delivering just like this flat performance. But what's kind of strange is in the flashback sequences when he is younger and even before he's turned into a vampire, his delivery is flat. He is not charismatic. This is just really not the Brad Pitt that we're used to here. Tom Cruise is very much miscast. And I, I have some sympathy with this particular review here. I think he works hard. He tries his best. He tries to be bring his, his charisma. But there's other elements to the Lestat character, which was just not in his wheelhouse at the time. And so it, it comes across as a really hammy and bad performance. But it's not uninteresting. At least he, he had some energy to him, unlike Pitt. But if I'm looking at this movie, the, your two leads are rough. This is only about a two-hour movie, but it drags, which I really wasn't expecting from, from Neil Jordan at all. It, it is, uh, I've seen it three times, and each time it seems like a bit of a slog to get through. Uh, Dan very much agreed with me on, on this front. I think we are both willing to blame the screenplay a little bit. Dan was more forgiving of a lot of uh, the setups. He said it has a good look to it. I suppose for the time it does, but this last time it just looks highly produced. You can tell it was shot. Most of it was shot in the studio. Uh, the sets look kind of fake. Uh, the special effects, uh, there's a lot of stuff with fire in here, look kind of uh, fake as well. Uh, not CGI fake, but still just uh, – I. I I can appreciate some of the setup and some of the art direction, but I, I, I really think the stuff that was shot in studio was not fantastic. Um, the makeup is a little bit too much in places, uh, unlike Bram Stoker's Dracula, which had, you know, 100% of its production looked amazing here. The saving grace, and the to me, the only reason in my opinion, to watch Interview with a Vampire is this up-and-coming performance by Kirsten Dunst, who is well-established and we now know from many different movies. She was about 10 or 11 at the time, and she is a child who gets turned into a vampire um, by Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. And she spends the rest of her life... We, we do see this in other vampire movies. Uh, Dan um, brought up... Uh, uh, 
brought up some some examples of this uh, and where we see a, a child who has been turned and is then an adult, in fact, many, many years beyond being an adult, but is still treated like a child, in some cases being treated a bit like a baby but by society, by the world, but also by other vampires and is not taken seriously. And that's what happens here uh, with the Kirsten Dunst character, who is the most ruthless vampire of them all. And will go and will mani manipulate people into thinking she's a lost child. Uh, she will take uh, different tutors, different teachers, and she will feed off of them. And they're constantly having to move. And uh, it's, it's just a, a really interesting performance. And it starts off as a little bit of a like a father-daughter relationship with Brad Pitt as, as they go along. Uh, there's big confrontations with Lestat. Not to ruin too much, but uh, but very much she plots against him so that they can separate. And then when that happens, Brad Pitt and Kirsten Dunst go off on their own. And um, word gets around about this attack on Lestat. And that's one of the rules is that vampires do not try to kill other vampires. And that marks Kirsten Dunst. And uh, it becomes... Um, quite tragic. I think the movie is her character. And if the entire movie had been about her, it might have been, might have even been possibly the top of this group of movies. But unfortunately, it's about Brad Pitt. And so the stuff that happens before and the stuff that spoilers happens after Kirsten Dunst's character has left the movie. Is just nowhere as exciting. Um, a few other noteworthy actors to appear. Uh, Antonio Banderas, again, he was up and coming at this time. He plays this potential love interest uh, for, for Pitt, kind of a replacement for Lestat. Um, but it's uh, just... Again, it feels very forced, very flat. There, there, there isn't much to that character. They don't give him a lot of dimension. And Stephen Ray appears in, I, I believe, every single Neil Jordan film. A great collaboration. They're both from Northern Ireland. Uh, Stephen Ray is a terrific actor. I, I encourage you to check out um, most of his filmography. Here he's given pretty much nothing to do other than, than to be just a, a nemesis for Brad Pitt. Um, from the beginning, from the beginning, and he's uh, he's a stage actor, and they uh, and they they will trap a woman and uh, and for the, this vampire theater feed on her during a show, and that's pretty much all he has to do, other than to be just this kind of two dimensional villain, um, and uh, his his fate is pretty much determined after what happens to Kirsten Dunst. The most life we see in Brad Pitt is in two sequences. So I do want to balance this out a little bit. After what's happened to uh, to Kirsten Dunst, um, Louis is enraged and he enacts a very methodical revenge on every single vampire uh, who in in Paris who has come after him, and uh, it's. That's quite a good sequence, even though the effects don't quite hold up. It still looks like it's in the studio. 
but I, I, I felt his rage a little bit more. And there's a scene towards the end of the movie where, um, spoilers, we have the story is told and Christian Slater just simply has not gotten it. Like this whole thing is a warning. You do not want to be a vampire. It is not a glamorous life like it's portrayed in the movies and in literature and that kind of thing. And at the end, Christian Slater's like, oh, please turn me. I want to be a vampire. And Pitt's upset that he has failed. He feels like he's failed because he did not convince Slater and then the world, because he's then going to report this out to the world, that it is not glamorous to be a vampire. It is a horrible life. And Pitt shows some life in that scene. And it is quite jarring because it's the only time we do see that happen. Um so those scenes are good, but on the whole, Interview of the Vampire is really kind of a dull movie. And considering the amount of money and publicity they put behind it, um, and the fact that it didn't turn into a, a series of movies probably says it all right there. A bit of a disappointment, but I probably will return to it simply because of Kirsten Dunst's amazing, amazing performance. Uh, she basically steals the movie from Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Antonio Banderas, Stephen Ray, and this huge Hollywood production. And any praise that was uh, that she was garnered, I think she had a Golden Globe nomination, not an Oscar nomination, was very, very much well-deserved. So thumbs down to Interview with the Vampire. And Dan uh, and I agreed very much, even though he was a bit more... Um, more, uh, he was more uh, impressed with the look of Interview with the Vampire than I was. So I guess maybe if you turn off the volume and you uh, watch it, it's, it's worthwhile. But that's how I kind of feel about Blade too. So we we're both kind of in similar places, just uh, defending one movie over the other a little bit more. And the last movie, and probably the anomaly in this list of movies that we're talking about, is a Twilight film called Breaking Dawn Part One. So I said to Dan that, you know, depending on how he felt about this, I, I may have owed him an apology. And he said, yes, I owed him a, an apology for making him watch the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. Dan went in without any background on Twilight. And um, make a long story short, I have actually watched the previous films. I have yet to watch Breaking Dawn Part 2. But I had read the books up until the fourth book, which is Breaking Dawn for those Twilight fans out there. I never give up on a book. Like even if I need to take a little bit of a break, I will return to it. And every time I return to Breaking Dawn, I would read a few pages and then I'd have to give up because it would frustrate me so much about how bad it is. My theory on movies or books to movies is this. If you have a great novel, then it's going to be a good movie. If you have a good movie, 
then it's probably going to be a bad movie. If you have a bad novel, the movie's going to be a train wreck. And I'm sorry to fans of Twilight, but I think Dan and I were together on this one that this is the train wreck category. This is a bad, bad movie. And I am a bit of a defender of the beginning of the Twilight, the books. I like the first book. I actually appreciated Bella's first-person narration as this insecure teenage girl who ends up falling in love with this vampire. Uh, but then it became so hammy and so so two-dimensional and, and almost insulting to uh, actual teenage girls um, in his characterization. And the movies were never quite as good. But I, I could sort of half recommend the first Twilight movie, but the movies after that have been terrible. This one... Um, uh, Bella and Edward are getting married. Um, there's also the tension with Jacob because Jacob the werewolf uh, is upset that this has happened, but they all sort of accept it. The marriage happens, um, and then they go off on honeymoon, and even though we're not really supposed to, uh, he's supposed to turn Bella into a vampire so they can have sex. They have sex. Um and it's brutal, and uh, Bella gets beaten up horribly, and Edward says, I'm never going to do this again. But based on this one sequence, this one experience, um, she does, in fact, get pregnant, and it looks like she is a human being who is pregnant with, spoilers, a vampire child. And then they're trying to sort out what to do about this. And then this leads to all kinds of trouble at home when they hear that uh, that this has happened uh, because very much there's this belief that the werewolves and the, uh, and the vampires who had this treaty, the treaty has been broken. Jacob wants to protect Bella at all costs, so he turns on, on the werewolves and gives information to the Collins, which he hates to do. And there's this kind of non-event battle sequence that happens, the effects are horrible. So I was tough on Interview with the Vampire. I think I was tough on Blade 2. But the CGI for the werewolves in Breaking Dawn is among the worst I have ever seen. Uh, it, it almost looks like a bad animated cartoon. The voices don't work. Um, the... Like the, the voice work that was done, I assume in post-production, is kind of out of sync. Um, it's not really following anything. It's all just over the top. And nobody is really appearing that good in this film. The thing that we agreed on was it's beautiful scenery because... Um, Dan uh, lived in Washington State. I traveled through there last summer, and it, watching it actually met, made me miss that ability to travel during COVID-19 and be able to see the beautiful scenery in um, the northwestern part of the United States. So the scenery is beautiful, but that's kind of weak if that's the best thing about your movie. This movie got a lot of Razzie nominations. I, I came in with an open mind. I wanted to be a defender of it, I, and I just simply could not defend Breaking Dawn Part 1 in any way, shape, or form. 
and I, you know, I, I kind of wanted to like it um, and say that they were wrong, but they, they weren't really wrong to give Razzie nominations. Where I'm a little bit confused is Robert Pattinson kind of escaped a lot of that hate on in the late stages of the Twilight series. And I think he's absolutely awful. I mean, he is, I just accused Brad Pitt of being very flat and boring in this vampire movie. Uh, we were after Keanu Reeves for his performance, playing a human, by the way, in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But um, I'd say Robert Pattinson's much, much worse. Now, he's gone on to some independent movies and a little bit of success here. I'm not completely sold on him yet. I have been a, an enormous defender of Kirsten, of Kristen Stewart, not Kirsten, the thing of Kirsten Dunst, sorry, of Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, I, I very much think is a, is potentially a great actor. She, I feel, fell into the Natalie Portman thing where she signed on when she was young to this series of movies. And I think she was handsomely paid for the Twilight films. I'm not sure Portman was, was paid quite as much, but they found themselves stuck in kind of mediocre roles, or in some cases bad roles, trying to make the best out of it, and got a lot of negative attention. I think uh, Kristen Stewart in particular, there was a, a real movement against her because of, of this series, which I think is a bit unfair. And she's proven herself uh, in several independent movies. Personal Shopper is uh, in particular one I, I really like. I liked her before the Twilight movies and films like uh, Sean Penn's Into the Wild. I think we're going to be seeing some great things from her in the future now that she was able to get past this Twilight series of films. Um, she's not fantastic, but I don't think she's awful. I mean, I think she's, I see her trying to deliver some kind of a performance in here. Uh, a few other mentions, uh, again, I'd, probably because of the success of Stephanie Meyer's novel, they got some pretty good people to sign on. Uh, Anna Kendrick wasn't that well known. Uh, she signed on to the series around the same time that a movie Up in the Air came out, which got her an Oscar nomination, and she'd moved on to some other things. She does her best to infuse some life in kind of an early wedding scene, um, even though it's not fantastic writing. Uh, and a terrific British actor, Michael Sheen, uh, makes some appearances. He doesn't have a big part in this uh, because he's kind of the big bad, I think, for part two of this series and uh, one of the big bad uh, uh, super vampires. Um, it's nice to see him in this movie, but I, I think again, he this was probably a paycheck for him, if nothing else. So unfortunately there isn't a whole lot more I want to say about Breaking Dawn part one. Um, I, I don't want to spend all day bashing it. It's, it is what it is. I think Twilight fans, if you love the books and you love the series, I am happy for you. It probably met its demographic. It's kind of a critic-proof type of a film, but it, it, it is hard when I have this show to not admit that it is not a great film. The whole Twilight thing is a kind of an interesting series in some ways. Uh, it is a bit of a <clears throat> anti-premarital sex movie because it starts off with Bella and she would be killed if she was to have sex with her boyfriend, Edward, so they wait till they're married. Um, but there's all the whole moral dilemma of, of cursing her to being a vampire, but it is, you know, 
predictable that at some point she's probably going to be turned into a vampire in this series. But then the one time that she does have sex, and this is after she's been married, then she gets pregnant right away. So it's like this kind of strange warning to teenage girls that, you know, don't do this or else. Um, and it's a really hammy love story. I, I, I do like this attempt that she did. She jumped on the, Stephanie Meyer, jumped on the vamp, vampire bandwagon. She tried to do her own thing. There's some clever stuff there with that they could go out in, in daylight because they live in Washington State where there's a lot of cloud cover um, and, and some of the things connected to that. But when we're looking at things like the key to uh, Bella's pregnancy is drinking these uh, kind of uh, blood smoothies or, or blood slurpees, as Dan called them, um, and and... And then just these these other little melodramas that pop up, um, we we just very much have for both of us our, our thumbs way down uh, on that film on Breaking Dawn, Dawn Part One. But if you enjoyed it, I'm very happy for you. Okay, so final part, uh, and again, this was. This is part is usually a little bit more exciting when I have my guest with me, but I am going to uh, convey the points that Dan gave as well as my points, and then I will announce which movie of the six got the least number of points and what Dan would like me to do with that movie um, when I am done. <clears throat> so first off... Um, as I said, uh, Dan is a fan of Blade Two. He has a nice history with it. Um, he gives a lot of credit to Guillermo del Toro for taking a studio sequel and making it into something that's maybe a little bit more uh, exciting than it has any right to be. He gave it 12 points. Then, uh, as he said, he's a big fan of Shadow of the Vampire. He felt it was the best movie of the six. He gave it 16 points. Then we looked at Bram Stoker's Dracula, and um, he has problems with Winona Ryder and with Keanu Reeves uh, in places, and that was enough for him to give it 10 points, which is kind of average, a little bit in the middle. Um, so we were in kind of different places on Bram Stoker's Dracula, but he gave it 10. Then uh, with From Dusk Till Dawn, he was kind of in a similar place. He, he did give 10 points to From Dusk Till Dawn. He likes it as an entertainment, much like uh, he likes Blade. But he was quite distracted with um, just the beginning part and how um, twisted Quentin Tarantino's mind is. Um, he did mention in, in many ways that he feels From Dusk Till Dawn was kind of the lead-in to uh, what would be Grindhouse, where we see the Tarantino half and we see the Robert Rodriguez half. And he's a fan of the Robert Rodriguez half. The, the vampire stuff was his favorite part. So he gave 10 points to that one. Interview with the Vampire, he gave eight. He was a little bit uh, more forgiving than I was with kind of the, the pace of it. Uh, I think he likes the, the vampire mythology and what, was try what they tried to do in here. And he likes the look of it a little bit more more than I'd, I do. 
Uh, and then he gave uh, what he considered four generous points to Breaking Dawn Part 1. He said all four of those points go to the Washington State uh, scenery in the film. So on the whole, we are in some different places with points, but I, I, I think that, you know, we didn't disagree too much other than, than in a few places. <clears throat> I gave Blade five points. I, I think it's fine. I just, uh, I, I was fighting the movie probably a little bit more than, than I should have. I think it will satisfy its target audience um, well enough. I'm a, a fan of Shadow of the Vampire. I gave it 10 points. I did defend John Malkovich's performance um, when when we were talking a little bit more, and uh, the character as well. I didn't. I was fine with him being a bit more mysterious, so that was okay. But Dan had a, a few problems with that, but he gave more points to Shadow of the Vampire than I did. Bram Stoker's Dracula is my favorite one of the six. I gave it twenty points, which was a third of the points available. Um, I will revisit it lots. I, I don't mind to me the Keanu Reeves performance didn't ruin things for me and I'm in a very different place I think it's one Nona Ryder one of her best film performances actually then when we look at From Dust Till Dawn I gave it uh, probably more points it was just such a good good to have kind of a, a more of a brainless uh, vampire movie in this mix here it's very highly entertaining 18 points uh, this is the most I've enjoyed watching it. I, I do recommend From Dusk Till Dawn if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's an easily accessible movie to get. Um, then we look at Interview with the Vampire, and this was a slog for me, and I gave it only five points. Similar to Blade, Blade had a lot of excitement. I think Blade um, stole a lot from The Matrix and the look from The Matrix, uh, but it has more energy than Interview with the Vampire, but it doesn't have a performance that's as good as Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst gave one of the best performances of the six movies that we're looking at, uh, right up there with Willem Dafoe, to be honest. And so all five of my points are, are being given. Maybe four and a half. I'll give half a point to Christian Slater, who does did a nice job and, and came in at last minute to take over that River Phoenix role in Interview with the Vampire. And uh, last and sadly least was... Uh, from the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. I gave it two points, again, just for the scenery, and uh, really just just found it a very, very difficult movie uh, to watch and to get through. Um, I was fighting it, and I think I had a right to fight it. Maybe I didn't as much with Blade 2. So, so where uh, that left us with point totals, the biggest winner was Bram Stoker's Dracula, which had 30 points. Next was From Dust Till Dawn, which had 28 points. Third, right in the middle, is Shadow of the Vampire with 26. And then, um, I'm sorry, From Dust Till Dawn, yeah. From, yeah, uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Then, uh, with 17 points, was Blade 2. So it was also in the middle. It got uh, the fourth most points. Then, with the second last number of points, 13 points, interview with the vampire. It could have easily been the one to leave my movie collection, but Breaking Dawn Part 1 only had six points. So what Dan uh, was very clear about what he wants me to do, he wants me to take two boards together, nail them together like a stake, and to, he wants a video of this, which I will then put on to uh, my, my web page and onto the Facebook group. 
as uh, me staking this Blu-ray into the ground and burying it down as deep as I possibly can. So, uh, in uh, in short, he hates Breaking Dawn, and I don't completely blame him for that. So I once again want to thank Dan and apologize that the episode that we recorded a week ago was not um, was not able to be uh, to uh, to be shown in the normal format. But I want to thank folks for tuning in and uh, checking out this this live recap of that show. Uh, I'm going to take the audio from this and put it on to my uh, website, www.theshelfsheddingmovieshow.ca. Please check it out. Please send me some feedback on my Facebook group or through email, shelfsheddingmovieshow at gmail.com. Please check out my friend Larry Parsons' show, Rank and Review. Uh, every two weeks he has a show. I believe next week's show um, or, uh, yeah, actually it'll be this week coming up is a show that I, uh, recorded with him where we talked about some Stephen King movies and, uh, I'm looking forward to having Larry back on as a guest on my show as well. Um, but until then, please, uh, be safe, uh, as we continue with these, uh, COVID restrictions and keep going to the movies. Thank you so much for tuning in.